for the past two weeks, of course, we've been talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, partly because it's dominating the news, but also because much of what's happening has very significant financial impacts. So our first segment today, we're going to talk about the role of money and finances as pressure or leverage to be used in deterrence. And then later in the show, we'll dive into our personal economies, Jean's favorite phrase, and discuss divorce and finance, and then answer some listener questions about bonds. So if you have a question about a topic you'd like to see us cover, be sure to visit us at planefe.com, where you can submit your questions. But first and foremost, what's happened in the financial news? Let's talk about the fact that people are starting to mention the R word, and by the R word, I mean recession. It feels very strange to tee that up after Friday's jobs report, which, which, was, a which was a lot more than expected. 678,000 jobs added to the country in a single month. The overall unemployment rate stands at 3.8%, which is why it's so odd that we're starting to see headlines suggesting that we may be headed for recession. That's largely tied to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, as well as our feelings about interest rates and the markets. We record this show midweek, as many people know. The markets have already experienced incredible volatility this week. On Monday, the Dow fell nearly 800 points, 2.4%. The S&P 500 was down 3%. The NASDAQ down almost 4%. That drop pushed the NASDAQ into bear market territory, which means it's down 20% from its previous high. The Dow is now officially in a correction. The S&P, which fell into correction territory in February, is somewhere in between. And investors, as they do in rocky times, fled to safety to treasuries. We're going to talk about bonds later in the show, but gold prices rose and so did prices of Bitcoin and Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies. We got to talk about gas prices, right? Gas prices are very high. And I think sometimes we miss the context of why. And the why is that this was going on way before Russia, right? This is not about Russia and Ukraine. Russia only provides a small percentage of the oil that we use in the U.S. That supply is expected to be replaced by supplies coming out of Texas very, very quickly. This is still about the pandemic. It's about the fact that refineries, right? They yeah, didn't... they just didn't produce enough. And when people decided, oh, hey, I'm ready to get on a plane, I'm ready to get in my car and take a road trip, there just wasn't enough. Demand skyrocketed and prices went with it. It's interesting. There's a poll out from a Quinnipiac, which is well known for its, um, its very good and reliable polling. And it says that 70 percent of Americans surveyed in this new poll said that the Biden administration should ban Russian oil over the invasion. And they said that they would support a ban on Russian oil, even if it resulted in higher prices. Well, you raised the topic of whether divesting from Russia is financial activism, right? Is this a way of just telling the world what we think by using our financial power. And I think as individuals, what that poll is saying is, yeah, in my small way, I'm willing to pay more at the pump because I don't support what's going on overseas. Yeah, I just call that putting your money where your mouth is, being willing to 
pay for the things that you like or the things that you don't like and support what you're thinking. Uh, interesting as well, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Starbucks suspending business in Russia. Well, and Visa and MasterCard right. stopped um, processing foreign purchases. Apple and Google shut off their smartphone-enabled payment systems. So is that activism or is that just, hey, it is a crazy time to be doing business here. We should not be doing business. I think as far as the Coca-Colas and uh, Starbucks, mm -hmm. McDonald's, that was pressure, right? There was a, a professor who published a list of companies that were still doing business overseas in Russia. And, and very quickly they turned tail and said, okay, 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 we're going to get out of there. But I, I think there's absolutely no question that this is going to hurt the Russian people. Does it the hurt hope? the leadership, though? I think the hope is that all of this pressure combined, the fact that the oligarchs are not able to access their capital reserves, many of those rubles and, and other currencies are, are held overseas, Putin basically work to sanction-proof the Russian economy. This was all after 2014, and sanctions were placed on Russia for annexing Crimea, and put together this massive stockpile of reserves, about $630 billion. It's the fourth largest stockpile in the world. And the world is so interconnected nowadays that what other countries have done is say, we are going to keep you from accessing a lot of that money. We know, for example, that Russia has been working on improving its relationship with China because that way they can remove some of the reliance on the West just for sort of events like this when you start seeing global conflict. And when we were talking about those Russian reserves, we know 40 percent of those reserves are right now in countries that are participating in the sanctions. The rest are in China, and the U.S. is warning China that it wants to be careful. Uh, Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, basically issued a warning to Chinese companies that they should think twice before defying the U.S. restrictions against exporting to Russia because the U.S. could cut them off from parts that they need to make their products. Mm, interesting. So there are going to be huge implications, obviously, of that. Back here in the States, you might be very surprised at who's invested in Russian banks. So there was a teacher's pension group. It looks like ultimately they lost just over $3 million. They've now divested. They had more than $15 million invested. It was a, just a very tiny percentage of the overall amount of money that they have in this pension fund. But I think they were the second largest shareholder in this Russian bank. And that Russian bank lost 95% of its value. So the big disaster, obviously, for the Russian bank that lost all of its value and a little bit of a hit that went to the teacher's pension fund. It has been interesting to see just the speed at which this has all happened. So the last lever that still could be pulled and has been um, to some extent is energy. President Biden banned imports of Russian oil. Britain indicated that it would very quickly follow suit. But the cutting off of Russian oil would severely cripple parts of Europe. So it's a bit of a dance. So oil, banking, energy across the board. Uh, we've seen big organizations, uh, what would you call those, retail outlets essentially pulling out as well. I wonder what is left. It's a whole new kind of war, yeah. right? 
The, the question I think people will be teeing up the longer this goes on is what sort of responsibility do we have to divest? And we've seen this with other countries that have been thought to be bad actors on the global stage. So, so many pension funds, for example, they already steer clear of investments linked to Iran or the Sudan. And Boston College Center for Retirement Research actually did a, a piece of research where they found that pension funds that were forced to divest actually did not perform as well as those that were allowed to do whatever they wanted. Which makes sense. I mean, I think being forced to divest is always the worst thing at the worst possible time, usually with some kind of public pressure and outrage. So it's probably the worst time to be doing a very fast strategy on planning where your investments are. So really doing anything under pressure, right, is is just not going to be good. Except when you take it back to those individuals who are saying, I am willing to pay more at the pump. I'm willing to vote with well, my wallet. They're willing to take the hit. Right? Well, they're willing to take the hit. But the question is, are, are investors also willing to take the hit? How much are you willing to act in a way that is not in your own self-interest? We are going to keep talking about this topic as the weeks go on. But as we turn a corner and head into our next segment, we're actually going to change it up a bit. We're going to talk about something that I've been through, um, divorce, divorce and your money. You're listening to Everyday Wealth and we'll be right back. More with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky when we come back. Um. Back on Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. I'm Gene Chatsky. I'm here with Soledad O'Brien. Today, we are going to dig into a topic that impacts so many people, both emotionally and financially. We're going to talk about divorce. Each week, we are guided by experts from Edelman Financial Engines. They work with clients every single day to help move their lives forward. Today, we are welcoming back Isabel Barrow. She's a wealth planner in Alexandria, Virginia. Hey, Isabel, welcome. Hi, Isabel. Hey, thanks for having me back. So two out of three of us in this room are married to their original husbands. I am the one survivor of divorce, so I will put myself forward as a test case. I was going to say, you're going to be our test case today. Exactly. Although I have siblings who've gone through divorce, and just watching even from a distance is absolutely upsetting and just miserable on and every level. So I know we're going to focus on the financial aspects, but boy, is it hard to only think about financial aspects when you're talking about something that is emotionally devastating. Absolutely. Interestingly, in this country, the divorce rate is at a 50-year low. You'll hear people talk just in conversation, and they're like, one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. That's actually not true anymore. Since the 1980s, the rate has gone pretty steadily down. Now it's about 39% of first marriages end in divorce. But when the pandemic started and we started to spend all of this time with our spouses, it actually kicked 
back up again. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I think you really learn a lot about somebody when you're stuck in a house. My theory is that it actually either strengthened your relationship or it pretty much marked the end of it. Divorce in people over 50 is actually way up. Actually, the term gray divorce was coined by AARP back in 2004. Uh, They were publishing a study that looked at people in midlife, because that's the people that they work with and support. Among adults 50 and over, the divorce rate has doubled since 1990, roughly. Many people get to that point at retirement where they've done all the planning, they've laid it all out, but then all of a sudden their paths diverge because one says, you know, I want to go to Florida and play golf. And the other says, I want to stay in the area and be near my grandchildren. And all of a sudden now they don't really know what to do because they disagree on what the next 30 or 50 years their life might look like. You mentioned life expectancy, Isabel, and I think that's really true. We're living longer, which means by the time those kids are out of your house, let's say you're 60 or something like that, you've got a solid 20, maybe 30, maybe more years of your life. And I think at that age, you really start assessing, did I live my dreams? What did I accomplish? Sometimes people get divorced for that reason. They just think, I've got 30 years left, maybe. this It's now or never if I want to live the dream that I, I thought I could live. Isabel, do you see that in your practice? I have not noticed this with my Edelman Financial Engines clients, but I'll tell you why I think that is, because one of the biggest drivers potentially of marital discord or unhappiness in a marriage that could theoretically lead to a divorce would be disagreements over money, Mm -hmm. right? I believe that when a couple doesn't communicate about money or they have money problems, they have a money power struggle, you know, that's what can make for the unhappy part of the marriage and then potentially a divorce. When you're working with a financial planner, you're saying, here are issues. You're giving them to a neutral third party and you're asking them to sort of take some of that huge financial stress off of you and your relationship. Instead, I think it can reduce your stress around money and help couples to just be able to communicate better about their goals, their needs, like what are their financial strengths and what are their financial weaknesses. So if you want to discuss your finances, if you're going through a divorce, for example, give us a call here at Edelman Financial Engines at 833-PLAN-EFE or at planefe.com. So Isabel, when I went through divorce, somebody pulled me aside and said, you need a really good lawyer, a really good financial planner, and a really good therapist. And I had two out of the three to begin with, and I found a good therapist, so then I was covered. (laughs) What do you see people doing as they enter this phase of their life? What mistakes are people making financially? The first mistake is going to be making any decision in sort of an emotional state, right? Just jumping to the conclusion that, for example, you need to keep the house because that's where you've always lived and that may long-term not be the right decision for you. You know, can you afford that mortgage on your own? Are you going to be able to continue to add to your retirement account? So don't jump to conclusions that there is one right answer. I think another mistake people make is just wanting it to be over and wanting to kind of rush to get an agreement in place. And that agreement may not always be in their best interest. Do you understand the tax ramifications of how you're splitting up your money? Let me just give you an example, right? One person has an account with $100,000 of stock that they bought in the, over the last couple of years. And it's gone up a little bit, but it's it's not up that much. And the other person, the other spouse B, 
has an account also worth $100,000, but they bought the stock 25 years ago and it's at an enormous gain. So if they each just individually take their own $100,000 as part of this divorce, the one that has the huge capital gain, that money is actually worth a lot less to them because they have to pay capital gains taxes. So, you know, you've got to look at all of the financial consequences and make sure potentially that you're talking to a financial planner that can look at all of these things that can help you to understand what are the tax ramifications potentially of making some of these decisions, because it may not be as black and white as you think. Taxes are just one of those things you're going to have to be thinking about. Divorced or not, we're all thinking about taxes right now. It's tax season. If you are out there wondering about tax strategies for your investments or how um, tax law changes over the last couple of years might impact. We have a webinar uh, called Six Tax Smart Investing Strategies. It's going to be held on Tuesday, March 29th. And to access it, you just need to register at planefe.com. If you register now, you can also be eligible for a free retirement review. I've always thought some of the advice, which I thought was good advice, was don't do anything right away. How do you juxtapose that with, but also, can you make your mortgage payments, as Isabel is saying? That sounds a little contradictory to me. It's the same when somebody dies, Mm. right? You shouldn't make any spur-of-the-moment decisions that you don't have to make. When you start the process of going through a divorce, you're going to sit down with a lawyer, and the lawyer's going to say, I need a net worth statement from you. I need all your assets out on paper. It's very painful and gut-wrenching to sort of look at your whole financial life laid bare, but it's so important because it does that for you. It slows you down. It forces you to pull together all of the statements from all of the places to get the value of the house, to look at what is sitting inside a retirement account and what's not sitting inside a retirement account, and to look at what it costs you to live on a monthly basis. And you should get advice about how to use whatever assets showed up on that statement in order to move forward. You can make short-term moves without making these big decisions rashly. You know, I think a mid-later life breakup can have a bigger impact on your retirement as well and your overall financial planning. And it's how am I going to do this initially if all of our money is shared? You know, it's all of the other financial stuff that you have to think about as well. Jeannie brought up, you know, retirement accounts. And that's also gets to be really, really tricky. When we think about retirement accounts like 401ks, IRAs, or HSAs, You can't just say, all right, I'm going to call the 401k provider and tell them to give my spouse half. It doesn't work like that, right? There's a lot more that goes into this because you can't just split a retirement account. And what you don't want to have to do is pull the money out of these tax havens. You need to split up the money in retirement accounts while keeping it in retirement accounts. I think the best way to talk through this is to give you an example. And these are just hypothetical people. I'm going to call them Betty and Bill. And Betty has a million and a half dollars saved for retirement. She's married to Bill who has a million dollars saved for retirement. And then they get divorced. And they're going to split everything evenly. So now Betty's a million and a half is reduced down to 1.25 and Bill gets 250 from her, leaving them both with a million and a quarter in retirement money. What if Betty's was a traditional IRA, taxable when she takes it out, and Bill's is a Roth with no taxes when he takes it out? 
it may seem like it's even, but when you take taxes into account, now bills is actually potentially more valuable. There's a whole group of financial advisors that refer to themselves as divorce financial planners that specialize in this. Do you need one if you're going to go through the process? I don't think that you need someone who's specializing in one thing or another. A, a good financial planner like those that we have at, at Edelman Financial Engines have experience in this. Financial planning is financial planning. That's what we do day in, day out. So having a title or a specialty, I don't know that that it potentially could add some value in some context, but I think in general, that's what financial planning is, helping you deal with all of the ins and outs of the things that happen in your life, be it divorce, death, marriage, retirement, all of those things. Isabel, I'd love you to think about a list of things that people should do if they think they're heading for a divorce and things that people should do if they're coming out of a divorce. And maybe we can talk about those when we come back. Okay. You're listening to Everyday Wealth, everybody. We're back in just a moment. Listeners can join us for our new March webinar, Six Tax Smart Investing Strategies, on Tuesday, March 29th at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. Just visit planefe.com to register. And if you register today, you'll get a free retirement review. Edelman Financial Engines, from here forward. We're back on Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. Hey, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien, along with Gene Chatsky and Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner Isabel Barrow. And we continue our conversation about divorce and finance. It's complicated in part because the assets are complicated, right? You have a house worth a million dollars, for example, and there's got to be a decision made about who's going to live in this house or whether you're going to sell the house. And emotionally, you're really tied to it. Um, the biggest mistake that many people make is saying, I, I got to stay in this house. I understand that instinct, even if it doesn't make financial sense. I, I understand it, too. And it also has the complicating factor of sometimes being the most valuable asset that a couple owns, right? It's Often a trade-off, and Isabel, maybe you've seen this in people who've gotten divorced, often a trade-off is made between the house and the retirement accounts. Mm. Absolutely. In a scenario where, let's say it in this case, a wife, well, she wants to maintain that million-dollar property, and the husband in this case has a million dollars in retirement assets. But the question is really... Like, how valuable is that asset 20 years from now? So the retirement asset might be worth $4 million and the house is still worth, let's say, a million and a half or $2 million. And the question is not only, like, how are these different assets growing over time and, and, and really what is the true value to each of these individuals, but also how much can they afford on their own, right? So is the wife in this scenario going to have to sell the property in a couple of years because she can't afford it. Now you also have to think about the taxes that are going to be due on that potentially. Because if you're a couple and you own a million dollar house, you've got a $500,000 capital gains exemption when you go to sell that house. So if you bought it for 500000 it's worth a million, you can exempt that. You don't pay capital gains in this scenario. But if you're a single person and you own that house, in the same math, you bought it for 500000 now it's worth a million, guess what? Now you're exposed to capital gains on 250000 of that. So what you viewed as worth a million dollars may not truly be worth that at the end of the day. 
Debt, of course, is, uh, I think, something we actually don't talk about a lot when it comes to divorce. People talk a lot about splitting up assets, but but you, you get the debt, too. You absolutely do. And, and they're joint, right? If you have a joint debt, if you have a house that you bought together, if you have a joint credit card, it's... A debt that's going to be split in the eyes of the lender and many people don't understand that either absolutely it's their debt is now your debt so you're gonna be on the hook and you have to have an agreement or an understanding of how that's gonna be paid or have some access to be able to view what about life insurance also mm. you know that uh, health what about health insurance well health insurance one. is a huge one I think there are a couple of things that people don't think about first Cobra is often very Ugh. very expensive if you are thinking of Cobra ing shop on the exchange and see if you can do better not having health insurance is what um, drives many people into bankruptcy with medical emergencies every single year. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, you have to think about things like the future pension. Social security benefits could be different for you. So, you know, we're thinking about all of these different things that are so complicated, some of which relate to, again, you know, your income stream, your assets, your debts. But taxes are incredibly complicated and really, really important to consider as part of this as well. And if you're someone who is thinking about your taxes, it's tax season, and not even in the context of divorce, just in general, we do have a webinar coming up that is going to go through some of those tax smart investing strategies. You'll sign up at planefe.com and it's on March 29th. Um, and if you go on now, you'll also get access to a free retirement review. But again, pivoting back to thinking about all of this in the context of like, what are the, the stuff you need to consider as part of a divorce potentially? Let's also think about estate planning mm -hmm. because now, you know, you need to think about who, who's your power of attorney? Who are you going to, who is going to be probably the, all that changes and pretty fast. Right. What about your beneficiaries on your retirement accounts? You're going to have to update those. Who is the beneficiary of your life insurance? You know, a lot of people forget to do these things mm. a lot of people don't realize that the beneficiaries are paramount so if you don't go and change your beneficiaries on your life insurance for example and you die your ex could get a big life insurance payout that you did not intend it must be significantly more complicated when somebody in the marriage has come in with premarital assets right they've they've been contributing if you will um, uh, longer to their retirement and and maybe all of that predates even the marriage right that's a that's a common example where let's say you know one's been contributing longer than the other and so the the stuff in their mind is not even well let me go back to my example that I used in our last segment of, of Betty and Bill. So let's say that Betty had saved a hundred thousand dollars in her 401k but prior to the marriage. So now she has a million and a half dollar 401k account. And in this case, again, Bill has a million dollar 401k account. Well, the million and a half that Betty has is going to be reduced by that hundred thousand dollars that she came into the marriage with. Now we're looking at splitting of hers and leaving Bill with one point. 2 million and Betty in this scenario with 1.3 million. So she gets to retain that money that she came into the marriage with. But it gets complicated again because there's something that is called commingling of assets, right? And so if you, for example, got an inheritance, right? And you kept it in a separate account and you didn't touch it and you just left it over there and you get divorced, that's yours. 
if you got it and you said, oh, hey, let's use this to do some repairs on our home, let's use this for other things, that's a marital asset because you've brought it into the marriage. And so I just think it argues for planning throughout your life. I think it argues for making sure that you're getting advice, not when you're in the throes of a crisis, but all along the way so that you can think about these things. Because if you never knew, you might be doing things that you would like to take back down the road. Well, I think what's really important is don't make a decision based solely on emotion. You know, be sure to weigh all of the financial pros and cons before making a move like selling a house or buying a new house or, you know, the bottom line is have a plan. Understand your overall financial situation, your spouse's overall financial situation, and think about what that means for you moving forward. And I think it's really important to have that conversation in the context of a financial planning meeting. So talk to your financial planner and talk through some what, what some of the repercussions might be on your savings, on your financial goals, retirement goals, and know where you stand. And if you don't have a financial advisor, give us a call at 833-PLAN-EFE or planEFE.com to sign up to have a meeting with a financial planner and get the process started. Yeah, it seems to me, again, that in the most vulnerable, upsetting time of your life, probably learning how complicated all of these things are is, is not so helpful. You know, we've had a number of women go through our finance fix course at hermoney.com as they were going through divorce or thinking about going through divorce. We've got another session starting in just a few weeks. You can learn about it at financefix.com or at hermoney.com. It's a nice way to dig into where your money is going and start making some changes about what you want to do with it. Yeah, being, it sounds like being very intentional and a lot of communication in you know between the couple, um, working with somebody who can really help you figure out where is your money? Are you living the life you're valuing? Isabel, what are the top things that you should do when you're preparing to file for divorce? Well, I think you obviously need to at least initially figure out what your budget is. You need to think about where you're going to be living. You want to track your spending, write down like here are my major expenses. It's my car payment, my insurance, you know. You also want to start gathering all of your joint financial records. Get copies of all of your different accounts, your spouse's accounts and kind of understand what your overall financial picture looks like. You want to consider whether or not you're going to hire an attorney or not. Tick off for me what someone should do post-divorce. Change your beneficiaries, meaning, you know, IRAs, 401ks, all of that. Um, change your power of attorney. Change your emergency contacts. Revisit your overall estate plan with your attorney and make sure that the new plan kind of fits in with what your view is of what should be happening going forward. Um, and lastly, and maybe most importantly, is meet with a financial planner to come up with a new plan that is going to address all of your now post-divorce finances. Just a little, a little advice as you're going through it. Take care of yourself. Eat well. Exercise. Hang out with your friends. Be 
be nice to you. When we come back, we're going to turn a corner. We're going to talk about bonds. We're going to answer a question from a listener, which is a good reminder. If you've got a question that you'd like to send to us, uh, planefe.com is a great place to go and drop us a note and we will answer your question on our show. We'll be right back. Tax-efficient investing can make a big difference. Join us for our free webinar on Tuesday, March 29th at 3 or 8 p.m. Eastern. And if you register today, you'll get a free retirement review, which is a conversation with one of our wealth planners who can help you understand the strategies we'll be sharing in the webinar. We can also evaluate your current retirement strategy and pinpoint areas for improvement. Just visit planefe.com to register. Back on Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien here with Gene Chatsky and Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner, Isabel Barrow. We begin with a question from a listener. Uh, this is from Richard S. I've been reducing my bond index funds from 35% to now 25%. Since interest rates can only go up, forcing bond value to decline, should I hold any bonds? And if so, what percentage of my portfolio should be bond funds? Should I get rid of all bonds until inflation and the Fed's interest rate hikes slow? Thank you for that question, Richard S. He's from La Miranda, California. And just a note before we dive into the answer, if you've got a question you'd like us to answer on Everyday Wealth, just go to planefe.com and drop us a line. And let's just set some context. When we're looking at a component of our portfolio that's a core component, but that may not earn a lot of money over the next stretch of time, and I know when people look only at returns, it can get really, really frustrating because you're not seeing the results in your bottom line. But bonds actually have the function of smoothing out a portfolio during periods of market volatility. So, so let's look at how that works actually in history. And during the early days of COVID, everybody remembers the S&P 500 fell by more than 20% in February and March. And if you were all in, all in stocks, you could have seen your overall wealth drop by that 20%. But if you held bonds, your bonds actually reduced those losses. You lost money, you just didn't lose as much. And in fact, treasury bonds actually went up during those months. So that's what you mean by smoothing out. If you think of it like a roller coaster, the the highs aren't as high, but the lows aren't as low. Got it. And more recently also, we're seeing that, that bonds are having that dampening effect on the stock market losses. In mid-February, you know, everybody's kept saying rates can only go up. Everything can only go up. But since that time, we've seen the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine and Western countries have imposed their sanctions. And as a result of that, the expectations for those interest rate increases that were all but, you know, guaranteed in our minds, well, that, that's also come down a bit. And as a result, bonds have actually seen more gains. But we know, I mean, I think Richard points to it in his question, that bonds are going to lose value. Don't we know that? Well, if interest rates go up, the net effect is that bonds lose value. But again, if you own those bonds in the right way as part of a fund and you own them for the right reasons over the long term, that may be a blip on the radar screen for you. I don't know that people actually understand 
what moves bond prices and that it's not necessarily what is happening, but rather the expectation about what is going to happen. But you hear people saying over and over again, and you hear them saying it not just about bonds, but about the markets overall, the market knows, right? The market already has factored this in. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And because if you're doing it, you're doing it too late because everybody else already knows about it, right? So Isabel, do your clients ask you, why are we keeping so much of this in bonds? Well, remember that how you invest should be based on your goals, your ability to withstand risk, and what everyone else is doing has no relevance to you. And we believe at Edelman Financial Engines in continuing to maintain a long-term allocation. And if you're meeting with one of our wealth planners, we're stress testing a portfolio across thousands of market scenarios over decades, not just one scenario based on what's happening today or over the next year or two. Um, And bonds, in particular, treasuries, they can offer protection in case the stock market enters a downturn. And of course, as we always say, we don't know when it will happen. It's not a question of if, but rather when. So to go back to Richard, who asked us the question in the first place, the answer is really, maybe this is the right move for you, but maybe it's not, depending on how old you are and what your goals are and the size of your portfolio. I think Richard is an example of somebody who I would say, talk to a financial planner before you make that decision. Because you, you know, if, if you're not confident about why you're doing something, when you're doing it, what the purpose is or how to do it, you need to talk to someone and get that advice around what's the best situation for you. And if you don't know how to reach someone to do that, reach out to us at Edelman Financial Engines. We are happy to help. You can reach us at 833-PLAN-EFE or at planefe.com. When we talk about investing on this show, we're generally talking long-term. We're not talking about trading. Richard said, I've been reducing my bond index funds from 35% to 25%. So what do you like as far as a way to own bonds? I would agree that an index type fund is better than owning an individual bond. You are reducing out or diversifying the risk that the issuer might not pay. And you're also minimizing some of that interest rate risk. Because if you own a bond fund, it's extremely diversified. There's probably thousands of bond holdings within that portfolio. So what's happening is there's bonds coming due in that fund all the time. So the fund manager has money with which he can go out or she can go out and buy new bonds at those higher rates. So not only are you diversifying out some of that, what we call issuer risk, but also you're somewhat reducing some of that interest rate risk issue that you're dealing with with an individual bond. The bond manager is doing all of that for you. So then let's go back to Richard's original question. Which was, should I get rid of all my bonds, basically, until inflation and the Fed's interest rate hike slows? In general, no. You want to keep bonds as part of your overall diversified portfolio. Typically, we don't owe bond or bond funds for their growth or their income even. We own them for their safety and for their low volatility. We know that a portfolio with a mixture of stocks and bonds loses less in the bad years than a portfolio of just stocks. In 2008, everything was down, right? Right. So. A 60-40 portfolio was down 26% or so, while a 100% stock or all equity portfolio was down about 43%. 
Now, in 2020, a 60-40 portfolio was down about 12% between those couple of really bad months, like mm -hmm. February and March, um, was down again about 12%, while a 100% stock portfolio was down about 21 so it's bad, but it's just less bad. It's less bad. And yes, we also realize that long term, all stock portfolios are going to potentially or have historically had better long term returns. Now, of course, past performance is not an indicator of future results. Is it really worth that extra 1% return potentially? to take the risk that you're down 43% versus 26. So if I'm trying to hear you correctly, Isabel, your overall answer to Richard is no, right? It's a big fat no. I would say in general, no, right? <laughs> Again, there are always circumstances based on your own situation that you can take into consideration. And I do realize that sometimes good advice, you know, like stay diversified and keep rebalancing, it's kind of boring, right? It's not the wow factor of, you know, trading or, or, you know, get out of this, get into that. But we do know that timing the market and selling whatever asset class everyone hates at that time is probably not the time to sell, right? You don't want to sell something when it's down. That's not really how it works when it relates to investments. Richard, we hope we answered your question for you. If anybody else has a question that you'd like answered on everyday wealth, feel free to reach out to us. Just drop us a line. Go to planefe.com with your question, and we'll try to get to it in an upcoming show. And that is our show for today. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Isabel Barrow from Edelman Financial Engines, thank you so much for being here. Nice to see you, Isabel. You too. Thanks so much for having me. And if you missed last week's show, you can find our podcast. It is also at planefe.com. You can also get it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for being here and have a great week. Tax-efficient investing can make a big difference. See how you can work with a financial planner to make it a part of your overall wealth management plan. Join us for our free webinar on Tuesday, March 29th at 3 or 8 p.m. Eastern. And if you register today, you'll get a free retirement review which is a conversation with one of our wealth planners who can help you understand the strategies we'll be sharing in the webinar. We can also evaluate your current retirement strategy and pinpoint areas for improvement. Just visit planefe.com to register. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.